Did you ever think you were made it? I feel I'm so close I could take sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to hate it. Now they run, homie, look what I become. I'm Patrick Bedevi, host of ITM, and today I'm sitting down with an economist, Daniel DeMartino Booth, who calls out what China did with coronavirus, an act of war, and let's just say she goes into talking about the Feds, gold, investments, future. This is one you don't want to miss. My guest today, Daniel DeMartino Booth. Daniel, thank you for coming out and being a guest. It's great to be here. So, uh, 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 so when we get into this, a couple things. I've seen your stuff with your book. I've seen your interviews. I've seen a lot of the talks you've given. You can go extremely technical and speak the language of folks who are in that world, and then you mm-hmm. can also go simple. Sure. Today, let's try to speak to the audience of middle to simple to uh, get a lot of us educated on what's going on. Sure. Obviously, some of the people that are on here are experts in this area, but... Uh, most of us want to learn a little bit more on what you know. So having mm-hmm. said that, we've not seen a time like this in a long time. What is your biggest concern today when you see all this stuff going on? Well, so my mother grew up in South Texas okay. with her grandparents who survived the Great Depression. So she's one of the few Americans left who remember what it means to save before you spend. It is not part of the American culture anymore. But nor in more than 100 years have we needed to be of this mindset, or so at least we thought. There's always been access to credit. There's always been a mortgage. There's always been a car loan. There's always been a credit card, if you're kind of running straight down the middle. But I think what the coronavirus is going to revive is kind of our founding fathers, their, their philosophy. You know, if, if you don't plan ahead, then you'll fail to be, if you don't prepare, then you're, you fail to be prepared. This is Ben Franklin, I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm, him. Mm-hmm. But what we're finding out with this economic shock of the coronavirus is that so few Americans are prepared. So few Americans have a rainy day fund set aside in order to weather them one or two or three months. And that's problematic and it gives me great hope at the same time, because I think we're going to return to some of our more frugal roots in this country, which has vast implications for the U.S. economy. How do we get here, though? I mean, you know, obviously, you know, the, the, the coronavirus is a form, some call it white swan, some call it black swan, because we have experienced some kind mm-hmm. of a pandemic before, so we can't necessarily call it a black swan like a 9-11 maybe was a black swan. but. How do we get to this point where our habits are so much uh, leaning towards debt and mm-hmm. constantly being in debt? How do we get to this point? Well, I think it's, it's been something that has been encouraged by Federal Reserve policy and by politicians in America for generations, plural. You know, we, we came out of, of the 1980s after the stock market crash, which was really just kind of a blip in a longer economic cycle. But we came out of that with most of our leaders saying, borrow and spend, borrow and spend. Things really got cranked up kind of in the 80s with the yuppies and the baby boomer generation coming out and spending more than they earned. You know, they were the first generation to take on as much debt as they did. And we kind of saw this hockey stick of increase Mm -hmm. in credit card debt for the first time that was accepted across the country. 
And, you know, towards the end of the dot-com era, I mean, we, it's hard to even think back to 1999, 2000, when everybody was trading stocks and insider trading, excuse me, day trading, and you, you couldn't go in a taxi cab in New York without the taxi driver saying, this is, I got a hot stock tip mm -hmm, for you. Mm -hmm. You have a hot stock tip for me. That kind of imploded, and Alan Greenspan, to resolve this, took interest rates to artificially low levels and kept them there for a long time. At the same time, you had financial innovation is, are the words that they use. And all that means is opening up the debt box to where, you know, it, what, what were we saying at the, at the height of the last housing boom? If you can fog a mirror, you can get a mortgage. There were people's dogs who were getting, you know, the credit card applications in the mail. I remember late on in the credit boom, I had a six-month-old son, my firstborn, receive a credit card application in the mail. It, six month old six son month got old a credit son. card application yes, in the mail. In the mail. And that was kind of the apex of people using their homes as ATMs. This was this was, you know what, Jane and Johnny and Maria, they can all go to whatever college they want to go to because I'll just take the money out of the house to, to send them. We can go take the Disney vacation we can't afford, I'll take the money out of my house and send them. So the, the mortgage bubble kind of took debt in America to a whole new level. And then that imploded. And we find ourselves over a decade later, and now in the current iteration, in the current cycle, we've bought more car than we can afford to drive. Buying a $60,000 pickup, you don't blink an eye because maybe it's a seven or an eight year loan term. Mm -hmm. And as Americans, I think we've kind of lost our way because we don't look at what we earn compared to what we can afford. We look at whether we can make the payment and just get by. And that type of mindset is what has left an entire, the so largest true. economy in the world, yeah. as vulnerable as it is, as this black swan, white swan, call it what you want, but that's what's left us so vulnerable, is that we've just done what we need to do to just get by paycheck to paycheck to paycheck and not set aside anything and now we find ourselves with record mortgage forbearance and people walking away from this and that debt because they have absolutely no choice how do we get here on the sense when i'm when i'm asking this next question because it's the same thing i asked before how do we get here in the sense of is this our fault or people's fault or is this the decision makers fault on making it loose kind of like the following you know you are living in a family and your dad lowers the standards and he lets you do whatever you want to do. Your parents let you kind of do whatever they want to do. Mm -hmm. And then a kid goes out and says, you know what, I'm going to go try to smoke weed. And this other girl, she introduced me to this drug. And I'm going to go out there and party, stay till two o'clock in the morning. You're 16 years old because no one cares. Yep. But is it our fault or is it the decision maker's fault that we got here? I think placing blame is, is short-sighted because I think the blame has to go around. I. I I think that policymakers, and the reason I wrote Fed Up in the first place, is that at the highest level, especially if you're economically vulnerable or if you're not, you don't know everything that there is to know about finance. It's not as if they teach it in high schools, much less colleges, as a requirement. So Americans aren't financially literate by the design of our educational system. So you get the politicians and you get the heads of the Federal Reserve, and they encourage this. So you're saying, well, that's a leader. And a leader is telling me how I should run my budget. And so they must be right. 
Ben Bernanke, uh, you know, at the height of the, of the housing bubble, was saying that that there's no way that home prices decrease on a, on a nationwide basis. Well, that's not true. It did happen during the Great Depression. But you're being told by people who sound really smart that you're making the right decision. And at the same time, though, you have to go back and say, it, you know, you're living from paycheck to paycheck. You realize it. You know if you're not setting any money aside for a rainy day. You know if you're sitting in, the, in, in, in a car dealership and you're being sweet-talked by the finance manager. You know that it might not be $600 a month that you can really afford. It might be more like $450 a month. And you tell yourself, but they're going to let me do it. And so I will. So I think you have to say that it was encouraged at the highest levels and shame on them. But by the same token, I think households have diluted themselves for a while as well because we have become an instant gratification society. And that's a multi-generational statement, by the way. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got an entire generation of baby boomers living in way more house than they need. But right now, their children may need it and may be moving back in with them. But I'm, I'm not trying to pin this on the millennials, per se, who are experiential and spend all of their, their disposable income on great vacations and the latest iPhones. No, I think this carries across multiple generations, and I think that millennials learned a lot from their parents who also lived beyond their means. So generationally, so you're not saying this is a uh, government thing, this is not us, because you know how you travel and you go places? I always travel when I go places, I ask the driver, so tell me about your house. What's a house go for here? This much. How much you finance your house? What do you mean? How much is your finance, you know, how much you finance your house? I didn't finance my house. You're at the Caribbeans. What do you mean you didn't finance your house? You can't finance stuff here. Mm -mm. What does that mean you can't finance stuff here? If you buy a house, you have to buy it cash. Yep. What do you mean you have to buy it cash? So if you don't have, yeah, like my house right here, $50,000, $50, my wife's parents and my parents helped us and we bought this house, so you don't have any payment on it. No, we don't have any payment on it, right? So that, that's very normal for a lot of people in different countries. That's right. Where in the US, it's kind of like, well, you know, uh, I can buy that house and finance at 95% or 90% or back in the days, Nina, 100%, you know, and my payment's only gonna be $2,000 a month and I'm financing a $250,000 house. That, that part to me is, if we allow that to be the norm, well, the people are gonna take advantage of it. Okay, mm -hmm. so you know the chicken and the egg story. I'm curious to know who started this standard, because there has to be somebody held accountable to this here. I run a company. If in our company a mistake happens or we take a hit, all the you know points, uh, you know everything's going to be pointed at me. They're going to say, "Well, he's the CEO. What'd you do? How come you didn't make the right decision? Right. How come you didn't go raise more money at a time where you know if a crisis was going to happen that we could maintain our status and all this other stuff?" Fair enough. I'm the CEO. Someone has to be held liable for this. Yep. You're an economist, you're an expert. I know I read your stuff, you try to be as diplomatic as possible because you're trying to respect your peers and the industry you're mm -hmm. part of. Who started this? I'm trying to figure out who is liable for starting this mess. So, you know, it, I would say that it goes back to a Democratic or a Republican administration, but the truth is, when the Community Reinvestment Act was, was, came about, First of all, let, let's go back a little bit further. We're in Texas. The savings and loan scandal happened here. In the aftermath of this great crisis where Texas was the epicenter, you had homes clear at fire sale prices. So you had mass foreclosures 
and, but you also had people come in who were going to live in the homes and buy them on the cheap. And then the market cleared. And it was ugly and it was messy, but the market cleared. Contrast that with politicians really enjoying saying that owning a home is the American dream. Now you can cross that from Clinton to Bush all the way on through mm -hmm. Obama. But the thing is, they were telling Americans that owning a home was the American dream. What they were really saying was mortgaging yourself up to the eyeballs with the assistance of a federal agency. Then you get to feel wealthy. You're now not actually talking. wealthy. You've actually become an indentured servant to this great big mortgage market, which is the largest debt market on planet Earth, larger than the U.S. Treasury market. I mean, it's, it's multiples of the size of the U.S. Treasury market. And politicians found out that people enjoyed feeling wealthy, even if they weren't. And again, we were not a country founded on the ideals of debt equals prosperity. No, no, you save, you invest, you prosper. And having Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the FHA extend, 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 increase eligibility for mortgages. I mean, when my, when the Vietnam War ended in San Antonio, Texas, you know, my parents borrowed money from the parents and with the help of a VA loan, they barely got a mortgage. And it was known for their generation that they were supposed to strive to pay that mortgage off before they retired. You certainly don't go into retirement with mortgage debt. And yet, here we are in America today, and the majority of retirees still carry mortgage debt. Think about that. You're in retirement and financially vulnerable. I know it makes it, it, but it is what it is. And it's the culture that we have accepted. And we've been told by our leaders that it's the way it should be. Who's questioning them? Oh, I think right now Mother Nature is questioning them. I think right now the coronavirus is questioning them. I think that there is going to be a severe cultural backlash where families feel the pain enough to say and make decisions on their own if they're encouraged to take on debt sure we're going to go back to our ways in a in some sense of the word but there are predictions right now that unemployment could surpass that of what we saw during the great depression i mean these are unfathomable numbers that we're considering in america during at the apex at the height of the great depression one in four americans were out of work mm -hmm. in two weeks time two weeks time we had 9.95 nearly 10 million jobless claims in america in two weeks time we got to one in 16 americans and what we know from studying google trends you can you can track any word on google trends Right now, if you track unemployment insurance, it's really popular, especially in Texas and in New York and in other states where there's been a tremendous backlog. Florida is going to be coming up big time because they have such an antiquated unemployment insurance system that people can't get through to file the unemployment insurance claims that they need to right now. But what we know from studying Google Trends is that the third wave was even bigger than the first and the second waves as other states went into shutdown. So we haven't seen the worst of what we're going to see in terms of the ranks of Americans who are unemployed. They took a survey just overnight. 75% of Americans 
have seen their income cut by at least 25%. In other words, even people who are keeping their jobs aren't making the same amount. Sure. They're not working the same hours. Maybe one of the two breadwinners lost their, lost their job. You've got your kids at home, online schooling, and you're trying to do your job even if you are working remotely. You may as well be on your roof trying to get your job done and, and form a sentence. I'm a writer. I mean, I, I mostly write and conduct research. And it's, it, things work out really well for me around 4 or 5 a.m., when the whole house is asleep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But this is, this is a cultural shift is what I'm trying to say. This is unlike anything generations have seen since those who survived the Great Depression. So Mother Nature is holding these people accountable with coronavirus, aka coronavirus, which... And I'm not saying it's revenge or anything no, no, of that I, nature. I, I'm just saying it's, it's shining a very bright light. I totally get it. It's kind of... It's, it's, uh, it's uh, highlighting a lot of the things that they've been doing that we haven't been prepared for. And now, hey, you're being held accountable. What are we going to do now? I get that part. When we read, you know, the articles that say unemployment is projected by the end of second quarter to be at 30 percent. Mm -hmm. You just kind of you read it. You're like, yeah, it's going to be at 30 percent. You know, you know, you're looking at the news. It's going to be at 30 percent. It's going to be at 30 percent. And like, let me skip the channel and I'm going to go to this next one. 30% is 30%. What, what does that really mean if you were to unpack? So, and here's what I mean by unpack 30%. If we were to unpack 30%, consequences, so ripple effect. If we go to 30%, 75% is minus 25% of income right now uh, of Americans. One out of four was unemployed back in the Great Depression. 30% means one in 3.3. So we're going to go into some tough times. What is the ripple effects and what industries, what happens to people, economy, safety? Where does that go? What could that look like? So you're asking the key question here because for as large as the fiscal stimulus is, and we've already got $2 trillion out there, the Federal Reserve is going to lever up by a multiple of 10, $450 billion so that they can keep a lot of businesses still in business some of which may or may not deserve to go out of business, but we'll get to that. But the fact is, from what we know today, the stimulus checks aren't going to hit until when a lot of Americans have been out of work for six weeks or more, the time the actual stimulus money hits their accounts. Six weeks. Well, it was three weeks from the time of the signing of when, when Congress passed the legislation and it was signed into law. And by then, there were plenty of Americans who had been in shutdown for two or three weeks. So there have been a lot of people who have been trying to get by on God knows what. That's why you've seen wealthy restaurateurs in major cities open their restaurants back up on their own dime to feed people who don't have food. We're talking about bread lines that you read about in history class in middle school. People who don't have food. And let's, let's stick with restaurants for just a second. The, the percentage of restaurants that are never going to return, never, is tremendous. What do you mean by that? Never going to return? Never going to reopen. Never going to be able to find the financing. You, your average restaurant has two or three days of cash flow on hand. A great restaurant maybe has one or two weeks of cash flow on hand. But they've been asked by the government to keep all of their employees employed and wait for the Small Business Administration loans to come through and float them through to the end of September. A lot of business people in America did the math and said, 
this isn't going to work and I can't tell you that the demand is going to be there at the end of the second quarter, best case scenario, I don't, I, you can't tell me that as many Americans are going to go out and spend the way they used to. You can't tell me that as many Americans are going to go to concerts, go to the movies, go to sporting events, go to music festivals, get on planes. You know, something of this magnitude. I mean, there's a headline that hit today. There are more New Yorkers who have died as a, as a, as a consequence of the coronavirus than what, than what died on 9-11. You know, I was, I, I was in New York at the time. I worked on Wall Street at the time. It's something that reshaped my life and the way I viewed the world. Now magnify that. Spread that across a nation. We're going to change the way we spend. And if we change the way we spend, we're not going to need to tap into as many services as we once did as a nation. So what I'm trying to say is, let's say we get to 30% unemployment. And let's say the worst of the virus has passed. That doesn't mean the economy is going to heal overnight. It might take years. And that's what people are not factoring in. Because if you have something of such magnitude that it changes the way you view the world and it changes the way you view spending. 2019 was an extraordinary year in American history. Business investment had clamped down appreciably. We had a trade war going on in the background. There was a global economic slowdown. China and the United States weren't, there weren't Chinese people coming in and buying U.S. homes. So, so there were a lot of things that didn't occur in 2019. To offset it was the American consumer, was the U.S. household. Consumption is typically two-thirds of the U.S. economy. That's the way it's been year in and year out for a very long time. In 2019, consumption was 90% of the U.S. economy as the Federal Reserve did everything they could to elevate the stock market, keep risky asset prices up, keep people feeling wealthy because they look at their 401ks, and spend, and spend, and spend, and spend beyond their means. 90% of U.S. gross domestic product in 2019 was consumption. I can't tell you when we're going to get back to a normal world of two-thirds of the U.S. economy being consumption because of the massive shock that this is placing on U.S. households and the way that they're going to perceive money going forward is going to be a tremendous change. So you're saying even after this, we go back to business as usual, the recovery is not going to be immediate because you have two camps right now, right? One camp is saying uh, the moment this thing clears up, uh, we're going to have, the economy is going to go back to 30,000, Dow's going to hit 30,000, everything's going to go back to, you, you know, business as usual, people are going to go back out and they're going to do what they're doing. You're saying, no, it's going to take a while for us to recover from this. Your argument on it taking a while for it to go back to recovering from this, is it based on the fear people now have that's going to take a while to recover from still the concerns of being around too much traffic, where we're not going to go back in the habit of going to sporting events, games? Are you saying the habits and the fears of people is going to take us to go back to business as usual? Are you saying more the financial decisions we're making right now of these businesses going out of business is going to take us to recover? Which part are you kind of saying? Is there more mindset or is there more business? Well, you've, you've described waves one and waves two. 
there's going to be an initial reticence and fear among people in terms of being in, in densely populated events, wherever, whatever they may be. So that's your initial fear factor. But what I'm speaking of is what comes behind this is a realization on the part of your average working American that they need to save more in the future. That they will never again wake up and say, why am I feeding my family ramen? Why didn't I think to, why didn't I set money aside in my last life? Is that a good thing? Oh, I think it's eventually going to be a great thing. But it is going to mean that, there's the, that the coming recession, the recession that we already know that we're in, is going to be more protracted and drawn out than what many are right now assuming as a base case. This could almost be like a filtering process to take us back to the habits that work. You know, it's, uh, are you saying almost to, uh, uh, you know how you talk to the generation that came from uh, the Depression? They're always a little bit paranoid. They're always a little bit more worried. That's right. You know, they are always a little bit more like cautious. You know, when you talk to people older, they're always a little bit more paranoid because they've experienced a lot more things. Are you saying that this generation may pick up a little bit of the habit and a mindset of the Great Depression generation of being more paranoid than before? Because if that's the case, I actually don't think that's a bad thing. I, I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah. And I think that it's long overdue in this country, but it's going to change the way the economy operates on a fundamental level. You're going to perceive, if you right now are stretching your dollar to fill up your grocery cart, when this is all said and done, even if your income goes back to what it was before, mm -hmm. you might not be saying, I want the high rise at Disney and the full package for the family. You might get in the car and drive somewhere and go camping. If you're at the store, you might not say, you know what, I'm gonna buy that lovely pork tenderloin. You might buy the pork chops. You might be more frugal in the way you approach everyday purchases because you were forced into being frugal because of this, because you were forced to overnight make a budget and live within it. How different is that than 08? Because even in 08, if you remember, guys were buying condos in Vegas for $700,000, a million dollars. Oh, you know, just put another one. I'll buy another one. I'll buy another one. And everybody had an S500. Everybody had a nice car, Porsche, Ferrari. Then when 08 happened, market tank 39%, we're like, I'll never do this again. So we kind of went back to good habits for two or three years. And then we went back to our bad, bad habits again. How different is this from that? The difference is that the government then was able to come in with many programs, mortgage mod modifications, don't get me wrong, there were 10 million foreclosures in the United States. It was a tremendous hit, but there were still many mitigation programs at the time. And the Federal Reserve had actual traditional tools the Federal Reserve was able to take interest rates from 4.5% down to the zero bound. They were able to inject stimulus into the economy, whereas today they're starting at the zero bound. The country had never known what a printing press was. The country had never known what it was for the Fed to, to try and, and inflate financial markets, which they successfully did. They were able to come in and keep zombie companies alive that otherwise would have gone out of business in a regular business cycle. We did have our wrists slapped, but the Federal Reserve came riding to the rescue and said, no, no, we're here, we're here to back you, go back to your spending ways. Maybe you can't get that mortgage you wanted, but by golly, we're gonna take interest rates down to the zero bound. 
We're going to have private equity investors come swarm into neighborhoods, buy up homes that otherwise would have gone to millennial first-time home buyers for fire sale prices. That didn't happen. You had investors swarm in because anybody that had deep pockets could borrow more with interest rates at 0%. You had the government borrow to kingdom come. So you had a very quiet expansion of the social safety net. So you ended up keeping a large percentage of the U.S. economy, of, of the U.S. workforce, excuse me, on the sidelines. Years later, we ended up with a, with a skills, with, with, with a lack of skills in the U.S. workforce. But part of that was also because so many Americans were able to stay out of the workforce and even access credit. All I'm saying is we have companies that are still in business today because the junk bond market opened wide back open. We have a lot of the rot from the last financial crisis that we were able to basically refinance, if you want to think about it that way. Kick the can down the road. Not, not eliminate or clean up, just refinance. Not eliminate, not clean up, keep the overcapacity in the system keep more people employed than they otherwise would have been throughout the crisis, but you don't come out better and stronger for it. You just feel like you have because you've taken on that much more debt. So that leads to a lot of different questions. We're gonna to go to negative interest rates because if you're going from four and a half to zero, you, you know, where are you gonna go from zero to what? That also mm -hmm. brings me to quantitative easing, which we'll touch about here in a minute, and obviously the Fed, which will get to 100%. But before we get there, you know, I have a complete different thing that I was curious what you would say. So pre-coronavirus, take coronavirus off the table, right? I'm at a Goldman Sachs event with a chief investment officer speaking, and she's eloquently given a message of how they foresee the economy being, and here's what's going to happen. We're not too concerned about the coronavirus. This was at the beginning stages, second week of January, to give them credit. It wasn't like it was the second week of February, second week of January. We're not really thinking this is going to get out of control. The P not, you know, the R not score is not that high where it's not going to spread. But take coronavirus out. Go to 2019. We're in July. Okay. U.S.-China trade war is still going on. Mm -hmm. Venezuela is still going on. Mm -hmm. Go a little later in December. Saudi Arabia and Russia is going on. You know, we have a, a, the wall going on. We have election going on. We have the divisiveness between Republicans and Democrats going on. We have 129 months of economic expansion going on, the greatest ever. We've never had 129 month economic nope. expansion. So if coronavirus doesn't happen, set that aside. We don't have anything that comes out of Wuhan, we're okay. good to go. There is no coronavirus today. Are we going to get to where we are today regardless of coronavirus or did coronavirus have to happen for us to be in shambles that we are today with the $2.2 trillion stimulus, and they're projecting another $10 trillion that's gonna come out possibly in the next month or two. So what's the difference? So I think the difference is magnitude and speed. We knew by looking at the data that things were getting very, very stretched. And we saw that if you took out fleet sales, for example, I'll just take one example, car sales. If you took out what the car rental agencies and what corporate um, corporations were buying for their own fleets, if you took that out, you saw four years in a row of declining retail car sales in America. If you looked at the employment sector, we got our last clean read pre-coronavirus this morning of job openings. We were seeing weakening on every front of the job market prior to the coronavirus hitting. 
This was a very slow-moving slowdown, but it was definitely a slowdown. If we looked at, at, at data out of Germany, if we looked at data out of China, which pre-coronavirus was, was growing at a 30-year low, Germany was slowing as well. So, and this is, again, this is all pre-coronavirus. So would the Federal Reserve have been able to float the financial markets through the election because they were so aggressively keeping interest rates at artificially low levels and they were so aggressively growing their balance sheet even though they were calling it not QE? Could they have floated the U.S. economy through the U.S. election? Possibly, possibly. But we knew, those of us who worry about these things, knew that the bubble was getting to be so big in the corporate debt market and the bubble was getting to be so big in the stock market that the littlest thing, and I've been saying this for probably a year now, that we are one financial shock shy of the Federal Reserve having to come in guns blazing and give a whole new meaning. One of, one of my clients said the Federal Reserve didn't come in with a bazooka. They came in with a neutron bomb. I agree. But that was what was required because when you try and buy time, and time as a factor of time gets more expensive, that's what happens. You inflate bigger bubbles. And we walked into this huge coronavirus event more indebted as a world and more indebted as a country, more indebted as a corporate sector. 74% of US GDP, almost $16 trillion corporate debt, non-financial corporate debt in America. Never seen these levels. Consumer debt higher than it's ever been. Remember what we talked about earlier. If you're Joe Q homeowner and the mortgage company says, no more, mm -hmm. no mas. You may not take equity out of your home. Cash out refinancings are over. And yet as a society, we're still told we better get that four-year degree. So now we have $1.6 trillion of student debt on our hands because something had to pay for it. So student debt's paid for it. And now we've seen credit card debt get back up to over a trillion dollars. And now we've seen car loans get back up to well over a trillion dollars. So yes, we don't have the same amount of mortgage debt in America as we did in 2006, 2007. But boy, we've met up for it big time in other areas. So whether you're talking about the world, over $250 trillion of debt, the US government, corporate America, or U.S. households. We've all been up to our eyeballs and drowning in debt. Again, that led to 15 questions, but let me ask one of them just out of curiosity. The world has $250 trillion of debt, which is a lot of it is credit, but we only have around $50 trillion of currency. How is that possible? You, you know what I'm asking, right? We have $50 trillion of coins and currency. We have a quarter trillion dollars, $250 trillion of debt. How we, does have, that work we, we have a lot of good faith based on the the prowess of the U.S. printing press. I mean, the U United States maintains reserve currency status. That's Everywhere fake money, though. That's not real money. That's fake money. That's two hundred trillion dollars of fake money. Oh, you're 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 really? I know, but it's all based on faith. How long is sustain? How long is it sustainable, though? Wow. To go at that pace? In theory, and if you listen to what you're being told, everything's going to be okay. 
trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars with the United States in the lead. The United States by far vis-a-vis -vis any other countries taking on more debt to address the coronavirus than anybody else on the planet, including China. That's saying something. And we're being told that it's all going to be fine because you can just have the Federal Reserve, which is what they're going to do this year, finance all debt that's being taken on, put all of it on their balance sheet. We came into this with the Federal Reserve's balance sheet somewhere in the neighborhood of four trillion. It is likely that we will get into double digits, that's $10 trillion. That's a scary thought. You know, uh, I'm looking at all this stuff and to me everything's a leader's bulletin and I think someone's gonna come out the winner here from coronavirus. I do think uh, uh, oh, this, behind, this is showing us that we need a strong leader. Oh, oh I think behind closed doors there is, a, and, and I'm going to go to an empire that I'm looking at that it's going to be crazy for me to give them credit, but strategically, I think they have been poised for this to come up. So here's some data here. China's national debt is $5.2 trillion. That's what they have, right? And their uh, GDP, uh, their debt to GDP, by the way, before I get into this, how much do you as an economist look at the debt to GDP ratio, is that a big factor? Do you look at that as a big factor or not really? It's not a big concern. Oh, I think it's a huge concern. It is. So you and, and now that we know that it's truly Milton Friedman behind me, yeah. I always adhered to his philosophy that there is no such thing as a free lunch. You can buy time. I mean, God knows we've seen a lot of time purchased, bought, but we haven't seen it paid for. So yes, I think that there will be ramifications. Okay. So when you're saying that as an economist, you do look at nations and say Japan's at 221% debt to GDP ratio, they're about to have a massive recession taking place. It's going to take them a couple decades to recover. Do you go to extreme measures when you see numbers like that? Or it's not a, a measure point that you look at and say that's a very big factor? Well, it, it really is a country by country basis. And I don't want to, I'm not trying to back out of the question, but internally in Japan, they own their own debt. Their fate's not necessarily tied to other countries. Which means? That they're not beholden to the kindness of strangers, unlike the United States, where Japan owns a trillion dollars of U.S. Treasury debt. China, China owns over a trillion dollars yeah. of U.S. Treasury debt. We assume that we can take on as much debt as we possibly can imagine and that our borrowing costs will never go up because we just assume that we're number one. It, it, to, to elaborate what you just said, is that, is that in a sense of saying, you know, we're married, we have a family, the Bed David family only borrows money from Bed David family, okay? That's Japan. But U.S., the family here borrows money from anybody, strangers, whoever's I can't. Is that mm -hmm. a best, good way of putting over Japan versus U.S. because we'll borrow from anybody? And we also borrow from ourselves, and we, we, the, the Treasury issues it and the Federal Reserve buys it. So then if that's the case, let me give you this number and tell me what you think about this. China's in debt 5.2 trillion, Brazil's at 2 trillion, uh, Japan's got nine trillion, and if you look at the debt to GDP ratio, Japan's at the top of 221. Greece 179, which we pretty much know why. Portugal 138, Italy 138, Belgium 115, US 106, Spain 106, UK 86, France 98.4, Germany 62. You ready for this number? Russia 17 <laughs> percent. And they bought 400 tons of gold the last couple of years. A lot of these nations that have their gold have been sitting on the same amount of gold for a while, but Russia's been coming up on the gold uh, leader's bulletin. Why are they at 17%? Their debt, by the way, it, Russia's debt is 217 billion. I don't have it written anywhere here, but well, Russia's debt is- Because you don't have any billions on your page, you only have trillions. Trillions. Russia's only at $217.3 billion mm -hmm. as of February of 2020, I believe. Mm -hmm. Are they looking at the saying, we're gonna make a vertical move in the next couple of years here because we're a little bit more responsible than others, or no, that doesn't mean anything? 
So people ask me all the time, because if you look at, if you, if you study the way people think, and I'm talking about, without naming any names, the socialists say that we can print as much money as we want. That let's say that our debt right now is 25 trillion, let's round up given what we know we've just spent as a nation. But the socialists, the, the universal basic income say that you can easily double it and because we have reserve currency status, and because we have not seen inflation in generations, we're going to get away with it and our borrowing costs are never going to rise. And as long as our borrowing costs never rise and inflation never rears its ugly head, then we can borrow to kingdom come. And when these things work, they work until they don't work. But at some point, if the rest of the world begins to push back, let's say certain countries emerge stronger from this global recession than others. It tends to be, if you're going to make a move, it tends to be he who has dry powder, the least amount of debt, the most hard assets, is able to assume more leverage and power than they otherwise would based on looking at the size of the country's economy. In other well, words, to your point, Russia has not weakened their balance sheet. They've strengthened it. And they're long-term planners. China's a long-term planner as well. China has a ton of debt. But China also has been a lender to many nations with natural resources throughout the world and quietly been colonizing a big portion of the world. And they happen to have an ally in Russia. So you can connect many dots. No doubt about it. Theoretically. No doubt about it. But all of this debt we're taking on does weaken our position on the global stage. I think you're saying theoretically because you're being diplomatic, but I think that's more than theoretically. By the way, China's number, if you can verify this, uh, Kai, I just want to verify this. If I'm saying this, if I'm incorrect, please let's correct it. I believe China's debt to GDP ratio is 50.5%, which is also low with Russia. Out of all the names I said, they're low with Russia. So it's interesting how the position is, is just, taking place. Uh, I will push back a little bit, though, because if you add up all of the different sources of debt in China, boy, they're, they're 300 or, or above 300%. If you, if you... Corporate debt, household debt, and the fact that there's a lot of state debt that runs around in places that isn't really identified. If you did that with us, where would we be? If we're right now 106, if you apply the corporate debt and everything, where would we probably we're be? We're in the upper 200s. So they're still higher than us if you, if you take everything in place? Yes. Okay. China is still higher than us if you're considering all forms Got it. of debt. That's good to know. So now, $123 trillion, U.S. collective liabilities that we have. How do we pay that off? I mean, this whole thing about debt, that how do you pay off $123 trillion? Oh, I, I don't think there's any kind of an assumption about paying it off. I think there's, uh, there's an assumption about carrying the debt. How long is that debt going to be carried? I mean, it's hard to say. Look, this is, you know, there are, there, there are so many. The next generation of constitutional lawyers is going to be very busy. States cannot declare bankruptcy. It is against the Constitution of the United States for, for the state of Illinois, for example, to declare bankruptcy. And we know from what we've heard out of Illinois initially that they're going to stop making some payments, that there's the potential for the first time since the Great Depression for a state to default on its debt. But the federal government is not legally able to come in and bail out Illinois, theoretically. They're breaking a lot of laws in D.C. right now, so I'm sure that they would just pass a special legislation of some kind and come in and do it. But that would be questioned constitutionally. 
What the Federal Reserve is doing right now is also going to be questioned constitutionally because the Federal Reserve cannot buy corporate bonds. But by setting up a separate vehicle through the Treasury Department, a special purpose vehicle, takes me back to my days of studying Enron off-balance sheet financing. That's what the government's doing right now. And by acceding control to the Treasury, the Federal Reserve is, has lost its independence. If you want to take the argument to an extreme, if Donald J. Trump is Steven Mnuchin's boss, then Donald Trump is running the Federal Reserve right now. And that's legal. That's law. Because there's $4.5 trillion that's going to be directed via the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. And Donald Trump has said that he will not answer to anybody, even though he has behaved and he's appointed an inspector general from his administration. But there are things happening in America right now. And you, you started asking me about entitlement spending, and that's what brought public pensions to mind so quickly, and that's what brought the state of Illinois to mind so quickly. There's an assumption that there'll never be a price to be paid. But if you think about what the average American household's about to go through, there are the makings of a third political party in this nation to question what is going on. It's very easy to, to see because right now there's a large, a large percentage of the U.S. population that has no voice. This has been said for a while, though. You're, you're really thinking we can have a third, because everybody's been saying third political party, third political party. And by the way, it'd be but a great we're, thing we're, to have a third there, one. But, but we've never had critical mass. But you, are, you and I are talking about 30% of Americans being out of work. <laughs> critical mass right there. You've never had the critical mass. But you've never had this many Americans who are going to be focused on who is and is not mm. representing their best interests. How do you tell between the bullshit? I mean, everybody can say they have you as their best interest. How do you, how do you tell that apart? You know, because uh, behind closed doors, who's really leading these guys? You said Trump. Let me read something to you, a tweet he sent out uh, back on September 11th. Uh, the Federal Reserve should get our interest rates down to zero or less, and we should then start to refinance our debt. Interest could be brought way down, while at the same time substantially lengthening the term we have the great currency power and balance sheet. And U.S., the U.S. should always be paying the lowest rate, no inflation. It is only the naivete of Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve that doesn't allow us to do what other countries are already doing, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that we are missing because of boneheads. This is 9-11-2019. This is pre-coronavirus to understand that we're going from four and a half to zero. Mm -hmm. He did not know that we're going to need more for that. You read that, you hear me say that. What do you think about it? Well, he, he, he's using the example of the country of Germany that mm -hmm. is effectively paid to take on sovereign debt. Of course, Germany is also very frugal, and their balance sheet could stand up to ours any day. But if you think about a bank, let, let's, let's take this to its most simple terms. A bank is in business to borrow at a very low rate and lend out money at a much higher rate. And the difference between those two rates is where they make money and why they're a bank, why they stay in business. If you take interest rates to a negative level, a bank has no reason to be a bank anymore. The bank should just close its front doors and go away. That's what you're talking about if you're talking about negative interest rates in America. That's how impossible 
it would be. That's how crippling it would be. That's why the Japanese bank stock index is down 90% from its highs, because the Japanese banking system has been crippled by negative interest rates. That's why the European banking system, that index, since negative interest rates were imposed, is down 40%. Negative interest rates are very much not. They're anti-American. They're unpatriotic. They should never even be considered. And to Jay Powell's credit, and those are not words that I use often, he has pushed back against negative interest rates because he understands the Pandora's box that that would open, with all due deference to our president. Let me ask you a question. Uh, uh, president Trump obviously has never been a China fan. Not in the last decade, he's not been a China fan. He's tweeted about it, he's talked about it, he's sure. openly said China's not a friend, he's not an ally, so we know that, right? And I uh, think we actually know that. Yeah, we know that. Okay. So the question I want to ask is, has he been a fan of the Fed pre-becoming a president? As somebody who's in real estate, that's how he's made his wealth. Okay. Is he a fan of the Fed or did he always have issues with the Fed? Because I'm going somewhere with this. Mm -hmm. this has he been a pro or you don't, you don't know? If you don't know the answer, it's fine if you no, don't. No, no. Um, when he was campaigning, he was, uh, he was very open and adamant about saying that the Federal Reserve was inflating a stock market bubble with artificially low interest rates. That's what he said on the campaign trail. So. That's a matter of public record. So let me ask you this question. Is, is there a possibility, even a possibility, that he is wanting to do whatever he can if it's even possible to bankrupt the Fed, the Reserve, Federal Reserve? To bankrupt the Fed. I mean, you can't, you can't bankrupt the Fed. You can, you, you can always bail the Fed out if you're Treasury. I know you can, but to get it to a point where we're getting away But is away he trying from, to break the Fed? That's what I'm saying, to go to a point where, hey, we learned our lesson, now we have to get away from it. Is there any possibility that's the direction he's going? Again, the Federal Reserve purchasing corporate bonds is in direct violation of the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. That law has been thrown away with the stimulus package because through a special purpose vehicle, the Federal Reserve can, through BlackRock, a massive firm, buy corporate debt and put it on the Treasury's balance sheet. If, again, you take this argument to the extreme, the financial markets have been nationalized. And if you take the argument to the extreme, to the extent that the Treasury is answerable to the administration, Donald Trump has broken the Fed. And this is something that is extremely difficult to get your head around. I need to get out more. Well, I think we all need to get out more. We yes, can agree we on that right yes. now. We're all going to be happy when we can get out more. But even before the coronavirus, I needed to get out more. So I know what the Federal Reserve Act says. And when I was inside the Fed for nine years, in the heat of the financial crisis, it was debated as to whether we could buy corporate bonds. And the answer was no. And yet, somehow, because this crisis is as severe and swift as it is, we have said, we're going to set the law aside, look the other way, and find a workaround so that we can make sure that we don't have a full-blown meltdown in the corporate debt market. By the way, that was facilitated by Federal Reserve policy keeping interest rates too low for too long. You would not have had a doubling of U.S. corporate bonds to $10 trillion if the Fed had not repressed interest rates in the first place. 
So one of my heroes in the world of finance is Jim Grant, and he's always said it best. You can talk about Alan Greenspan not, not imposing margin requirements in 1996 when he said the words irrational exuberance, recognizing we had a stock market bubble. He could have done something about it then. He decided not to. Alan Greenspan again was informed in 2003. People are getting home loans who shouldn't be. This subprime mortgage thing's going to blow up. He could have made mortgage requirements more stringent, lending standards more stringent. He chose not to. So Jim Grant has always said that the Fed is both arsonist and firefighter. And that is, ex that is exactly the same exact case today. So you break the Federal Reserve Act, you annihilate Fed independence so that you can come to, rest to the rescue of the corporate bond market that wouldn't need rescuing had it not been for Fed policy. This is an old um, strategy of wars. It's a Hegelian dialectic. You know, this is the Hegel philosopher would talk about create the problem, you know, blame it on somebody else, then be the one that comes and offers a solution. You'll be the hero. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for coming and saving us, but you're mm -hmm. the one that originally it's very deceptive. Now, the question you said, uh, if that's the case, Trump broke the Fed, was that intentional or accidental? Ah, that's the real question. Well, I will say that the dis I will say that Wall Street was that you, you knew that Wall Street had its pacifier taken away. And there was a huge whining among the babies on Wall Street saying, we've got a problem here in the corporate debt market. We've got a meltdown. We might have systemic risk, which is risk you can't contain, which is risk that the Federal Reserve could not do anything about. And we've got to come up with a solution for this right now. So you might could say that the need was there. I think a lot of people who would be otherwise known as capitalists would disagree with you. And they would say if they borrowed too much and they couldn't afford to service their debt, then let them go out of business. So I think that you will be told that the need was there, but I think that's a red herring. So, so let's talk about my friends who are the capitalists that will say, uh, if you borrow too much debt, let them go out of business. Do you have a problem with that? Because the way you said it, it seemed like you do have a problem with that. No, I'm saying that Wall Street has a problem with that. Wall Street has a problem with allowing the too big to fail companies to go out of business. Of course they do. Okay, I'm good. I'm, I'm fine with that. I, sure. I totally, we're on the same page there. But because they get to do deals regardless. A hundred percent. But if you take half, you know, they, they don't want all their corporate clients to go away, these big investment banks. They want them to stay in business by, by being bailed out. But then here's the problem. So what kind of a habit are you teaching if it's a constant bailout? If I know my dad's going to bail me out every time I go do some stupid, he's going to come and pay the $1,000 bail and I'm going to get go home and say, like, yeah, don't worry about it. Just don't do it again, man. What's wrong with you? And I know I'm going to do it again and he's going to bail me out. What the hell am I learning? What lesson am I learning? If you Not a lot. I mean, if, if you look at the cash flow of, of major American airlines, 96% of it went into share buybacks and we've just wholesale bailed them out. 96% went into the buybacks, uh, but right now with the 2.2 trillion, wasn't there a clause that they can't do any buybacks if they took any money? That was part of the discussion that, that was, we're having. That was part of the discussion. We will wait and see. There's also part of the discussion about not laying people off until a certain date and time and not paying <clears throat> executives more than some exorbitant amount. Who holds the Fed uh, accountable? Like, you know, the whole thing with the audit, <clears throat> how the audit never took place. Who holds them accountable? I mean, we had Jeb Henserling. He was in Congress at the time. He left. There's very little appetite during crises to hold the Fed accountable. This won't come until after we're past this and the people realize what's been done. 
But right now, Congress needs the Fed badly. They need the Fed to keep the stock market up. They need the Fed to keep these companies in business. They need these companies to keep their employees, but they can't address the entire problem. And now the great debate is whether or not the Fed's going to come in and cross the final Rubicon. What I'm writing about this week asks one simple question. Will the Federal Reserve buy junk bonds? Doing something that no central bank in the world has done. Will they go that far? Will they bail out companies that are completely insolvent? Isn't that a form of quantitative easing, Bill? Well, it's a form of quantitative easing, but in theory, even under extraordinary circumstances, you're not supposed to bail out an insolvent institution. I give you Lehman Brothers. That was what Ben Bernanke went on national television and explained. They were insolvent, therefore we couldn't bail them out. How many AIG laws- was solvent, therefore the next day we did bail it out. How many laws are being broken right now? I, you know not, what I'm saying when I'm, I'm saying this? I'm well, not I'm an not, attorney, but I've I, lost count. I, okay, so... The, the, so <laughs> Oh, my gosh. You know, the longest time, you know, Milton Friedman, one of his hiccups was that he had a challenge with another economist was the fact that he felt you can uh, uh, allow capitalism to do its part without any laws. And then later on, he came back and says, no, if there's one thing we definitely need, we need laws. Maybe we don't need a lot of lawyers, but we definitely need uh, uh, lawyers because China, I think back in 2004, they had only uh, four, uh, in 1994, I think they only had four law uh, uh, schools and only 2,000 lawyers in China back in 1994. So there wasn't a lot of laws. So right. it doesn't seem like a lot of the laws And they laws were poisoning are, their rivers. Yeah, and they were poisoning their rivers. Of course, and now going back to this, when we're talking about the whole Federal Reserve, to go a little bit deeper into it, what have they ever gotten right? Because if you look at internet tech boom, late 90s, oh my gosh, you know, look how many billionaires that was going up, S&P was going up, you know, the mortgage, oh, look at this stuff, this is just amazing stuff, interest rates, you know, this is great, don't worry about it, it's going to be all right, Bernanke, what have they ever gotten right? So uh, there are two people who are my heroes, William McChesney Martin, he went through multiple administrations, um, was famously thrown up against a wall by LBJ, and refused to back down to one president after another. Probably the most independent Federal Reserve Chairman of all time. He was the one who famously said, it is the Fed's duty to pull, to take away the punch bowl in the middle of the party, in a congressional testimony. And then you had great big Paul Volcker, who defied, defied Reagan, mutiny on his own board, and was tossed out on his ass and replaced by Alan Greenspan. And since then, basically whatever investors have wanted, investors have gotten. And since then, the inequality divide in America has gapped out. And so I guess since Paul Volcker, not much has gone right at the Federal Reserve. And you've had two independent chairmen in its history, two. How scary is it to go against the Fed if somebody's running for something and you're being too vocal about it? You know, I mean, Ron Paul tried to do it also. I think Ron Paul, he also had another book he wrote that had to do with the Feds, right? I think, I don't know what the title was, but he was also talking about something with the Feds and he got a lot of uh, uh, pushback and he had a lot of independents that came out. You know, libertarians and independents were all for him to kind of get him going, but uh, uh, he couldn't create all the momentum down to, to the end. Can you really go to the top and go against that system? Well, see, I mean, you've got a lot of enemies. I, and, and I've met, I've met Ron. Um, 
but I was never of the opinion that we should have ended the Fed. I mean, we're closer to being a banana republic than we ever have been. But if you, if you contemplate what China has done with our intellectual property, and then you extrapolate that type of espionage and trickery into what they would do if our financial system was unprotected, good Lord, they would take over the economy by force. So I've never been of the opinion that we should have no Federal Reserve. I've just been un under the opinion that if you can't have a Wayne McChesney Martin or a Paul Volcker running it, then you should, they should be fired. And that they should be, they should be forced to be independent. It's actually in the Federal Reserve Act that you are supposed to have a Federal Reserve Board that is from individuals who are from a diversity of industries and geographies. You're not supposed to pack it full of a bunch of PhD academics who've never had to have a payroll in their life and only have theoretical models that they put in place and say, I know, we should take interest rates to zero and see how much that screws savers because they have pensions for life because they're academics. Why do you have a problem with that? Why do you have, because, why do you have a problem with the, you know, the whole 17 out of the 17, I think you said 10 are PhD, two are lawyers. You know, what's the biggest challenge there? Do you think we'd have better Fed policy? I'll throw a question back, back at you and be Socratic. Do you think we would have better Fed policy if the people making Fed policy understood what it was to be on the receiving end of it? You, you don't have to sell me on that. I'm, I'm, I'm asking why, why is this continuously happening? Because for me, you can also make the argument if you go in there to say, how could you be the commander in chief of, the, uh, of America and you've never served the military? That's kind of tough for me. I mean, we don't have... Tough for me, too. And when's the last time we had a president that served in the military? That's right. It's been a long time. That's right. How could you be the commander-in-chief if you've never served the military? You have to know what sacrifice means So which in one order are to you, sacrifice the lives of others. Which one are you more comfortable with? I'm, 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 I look, I'm a huge patriot. My, okay. my, my, my boys, my boys go to a military this. academy. I mean, you're, I see exactly where you're going. And, and again, I think that the Federal Reserve Act was written in good faith and that we should have pension fund managers, prior successful pension fund managers, and there are a few, state of Indiana, the state of Utah, they're actually properly, despite interest rates being at the zero bound and too low, they're not taking excess risk with grandma's pension. There are Joe Q CEOs who've not spent all of the money on share buybacks, despite the temptation being there and Federal Reserve policy saying, don't invest in the future you're going to make a lot a lot bigger bonus and your stock price is going to go a lot higher if you buy back your shares instead and by the way money's free borrow at will and do so but you need to have people who understand the consequences of federal reserve policy making federal reserve policy and jay powell was actually a kind of a good candidate for that and he's buckled completely under the pressure it's funny you say that. You know, yesterday we had a meeting with my CFO and our board was asking me, so uh, uh, when are we applying to get the money from uh, the stimulus? Because we can apply for it. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying, how much is it going to be? They give me the number. What's the buyback? What does it look like? I'm like, you know what? We don't really need it. Why, why we apply for it? Let somebody else they get it that need it. We decided to kind of get our finances in order to not have to worry about a time like this. So I don't have to go and apply for getting the five or $10 million check they're going to send My us. My hat's no, off. Okay, I'm going to give it to somebody else, not me. I don't need to be billed out for it. But uh, I just think this approach, we're taking a loan for a loan for a loan for a loan for a loan. I mean, when does it ever end? So the argument then becomes about the taxpayer who's pissed off and saying, let me get this straight. 
you can constantly bail yourself out and you can constantly go print money with this quantitative easing. Why the hell do I have to pay taxes? Why do I pay taxes? If you can, and I know this goes to your argument of the socialism, but why do I pay taxes? It's slightly different than the concept of socialism because socialism is to give me stuff. Right. But why do I pay taxes? That's right. For my big 40th birthday lunch, there were, at the time that I had lunch with Richard Fisher, who was my boss, there were riots in the streets of Athens. And we ended that lunch with me saying, what's your greatest concern? And his answer was, I worry that Fed policy is going to eventually land us in the same spot as where Greece finds itself back then with riots in the streets. Now, take my example of the state of Illinois. You're, you're a Chicagoan. Your 401k has been decimated because you're one of millions of Americans who've been told to keep your money in the stock market no matter what. And there's, there's, there's no other school of thought. You've got countless investment advisors all giving the identically same advice to all of America. So you're Joe Q 401k holder and you're pissed off and you've lost a good chunk of your savings and you know you're gonna have to tack at least another decade onto your work life to make up for what you've lost. Now, the city of Chicago has just bailed out its pension again. So you're told that your property taxes and your state income taxes are gonna have to rise to pay for it. Let's just say Social Security and Medicare run out of money. So you're also told by the great people in Washington that your federal taxes are gonna have to go up as well. So you're bailing out the pensioners, you're bailing out the federal government, you're bailing out corrupt state politicians and unions who, have, who have given way too much more than, than, than they could ever afford to pay for, and your next door neighbor's a fireman who's living great, and he's set for life. These are the seeds of social unrest in this country. You can only drive so big of a wedge between the haves and the have-nots, especially when you're gutting out the middle class in the process. If you make very, very little in America today, and I'm talking about today, 25% of Americans who qualify for unemployment insurance are going to make more money in the second quarter than they would if they had not lost their job. That's how big unemployment, that's how big the stimulus bill is by tacking- Say that one more time, say that one more time. So the stimulus bill tax on $600 for every American, what they get paid by collecting unemployment insurance. So 25% of Americans who are going to be out of the workforce okay. are going to make more in the second quarter, April, May, and June, than they would have had they kept their job. So if you make very little in America today, you're gonna get through this. If you're worth a ton of money, you'd long since gone to cash. Let's get honest. If you're part of that 1%. If you're in the middle, you're screwed. And you're pissed. And you're a taxpayer. And that's why I say this could be such a ground roots source. This, this could be a generational change that brings about I'm looking at Abraham Lincoln, I'm inspired, that brings about a genuine change in how we approach our leadership in America. And I'm all for it. I'm not all for American families hurting at all, don't get me wrong. But we have gone through 
multiple iterations of gutting out our middle class. You can't do that for too long. You lose loyalty. Uh, uh, you can't. I mean, you want me to pay taxes. I don't have a problem paying taxes, but I mean, do something with the money I'm giving you and actually deliver on your promises instead of taking care but of But what if you don't want to do universal basic income and impose socialism? What if you actually hold dear to your American ideals and you want to work hard for a living? Then you're even more pissed off. Oh, that's the community I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the community of semi free money. I'm not talking about free money. I'm talking about, hey, instead of talking about $1,000 universal income, uh, Andrew Yang policy that became a hit in the uh, Democratic presidential uh, campaign that was going on, I'm talking about rather than that, what about if you do something that is not paying taxes for a certain amount? What for? I mean, I'm not, anyways, that's a whole different conversation. I don't want to go to that <laughs> part. But it, it, let, who owns But bear who? in mind, to your point, before you move on, the Federal Reserve monetizing the U.S. debt is what enables all of this. Oh, I, I, so I appreciate I, their role. I, I understand that. But also at the same time, uh, I want to. <laughs> I want to make sure that if I am getting to work and I'm working, I'm the middle guy, not the middle or the top. I'm talking the person in the middle. Yep. The middle person is like, oh, I can't wait to get these checks. It's going to be great. Life's going to be better than what I was getting paid to 25%, making less than 15 bucks an hour. Yep. So you know how that number is going to work out. The guys at the top, they're like, listen, I'm going to be fine. Everything's going to be cheap. I'm going to buy stuff on sale right now. I'm going to make more money today than ever before. Yep. Those guys are fine. The middle guy that's doing his part, her part, that's the person that I can understand why they're pissed off, why they would want to see some kind of reforms taking place. By the way, who owns the Federal Reserve? Who are the main shareholders? Right now, Donald Trump. But that's post-legislation. That's decision maker. That's you, you, decision. You, you, I'm talking about There is an answer to this question. <clears throat> there is truly an answer to this question. And boy, I'll be waiting for the hate mail. When I worked at the Dallas Federal Reserve, my email address ended in .org. There are, there are banks that own the 12 district Federal Reserve banks are owned by banks in the sense that they, ca they get paid a dividend from what the district banks make, up to 6%. And then whatever money the bank has, if it's a district bank, whether it be San Francisco or Dallas or Atlanta, then they have to pay the operating costs to operate an individual district bank. And after that, every single penny that is remaining is remitted to the U.S. Treasury. That is why my email address ended in .org, not .com, because we were a quasi-private-public enterprise. Jay Powell's email address ends in .gov. The Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C. is a bona fide formal federal agency that is not owned by the banks. There's a gray area. There's a gray area, and this is, this is up for everybody in tin hats. Here you go. Let's plow it down the middle. The government employees have permanent votes on the Federal Open Market Committee. The district bank presidents rotate in every few years. They do not have a permanent vote on the Federal Open Market Committee, so they have less power. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York, however, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York is also the vice chairman of the Federal Open Market Committee. He has a permanent vote. The only one of the districts who has a permanent vote on the Federal Open Market Committee and has the quasi-public-private ownership, which brings in the banks that sit on the board that you're getting to. So there is a gray area there. And the New York Fed does have extraordinary power compared to any other district. And that power over the years and prior to the crisis was 
corrupted, which is documented. And the reforms that should have been made subsequent to the crisis have not been. And if you want to get angry about something, get angry about that. But understand that the bulk of the power seat is a government agency or the Treasury would not have been able to step in like it has. This is like we need a drink right now. I was, was going to say that. Say, I can read his face. That's exactly what or something like old fashioned <laughs> is what we need right now. No, what no, you, you, yeah, you need something <laughs> stronger than a mimosa. <laughs> Let me say that much. <laughs> okay, so how much do you, if you're an economist and you do this full time, you've been in it for a while, this is your career. By the way, I'm, in, I'm in finance. You're I'll in, just. Sure. And by I'm, the way, I, you said yes. something about you start off <clears> in finance. I, I think you worked in hedge fund at one point. I think you did. I, no, I, I worked with hedge funds. I, I worked at a tri traditional investment bank. I watched what investment banks yeah, do so from you have the inside both, out. Both sides. Yeah. I do. I start off with Morgan Stanley Dean Witter a day before 9-11. That's kind of how my career wow. got started. You know, in Glendale, California, I was supposed to go to New York and then they said- I was short the S&P 500 on 9-11. You, you what? I was, I, 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 had, I personally had a short position in the stock market prior- How? Well, I felt that the market was very much overvalued okay. and was still going to come down. So, and my clients were very defensively postured also for that very same reason going into 9-11. My birthday was on 9-17, the day the, the stock market reopened. And I closed out my position as, as quickly as I possibly could because I felt like I had the blood of Americans on my hands for having profited from it. Small story, strange but true. Wow, what timing, talk about timing. Oh my gosh. Craziness, right? So how much do you read into these conspiracy theories that you uh, hear about with uh, the feds, with the creature of Jekyll Island, mm -hmm. any of that stuff. How much no. do you go, mm -hmm. how deep do you go? Have you ever read the book or no? Yes. You have to read the book, you're yes. in the world. Um, the six names, they own the quarter of the wealth of the world, et cetera, uh, et cetera. And Woodrow Wilson saying what he said about- I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. And back in 1907, when we had a financial crisis and when JP Morgan brought all of the biggest bankers together in his parlor and said, I'm not gonna be alive forever. We're no longer an emerging economy. We are advancing to become a developed economy. And like our developed economy peers, we need a central bank. Because I can't keep bringing you all together to bail out the financial system every time there's a crisis. So that was the, the genesis of the need for a central bank was JP Morgan saying, I'm going to die one day. We need a independent central bank, like the Bank of England. We've evolved as an economy. We need a central bank. Because of how the Federal Reserve was born and when it was born, much more importantly, it was born headed into a war that exacerbated an over-indebted, a globally over-indebted situation and brought about hyperinflation in Germany and another, excuse me, a Great Depression in between that took the world down with it and brought about a war. I want you to think about that and where we are today. But because of the backdrop with which the Federal Reserve came into being and the fact that it had to go into DEFCON 1 almost immediately means that the original people who conceived it were bankers and had extraordinary powers. Since then, the Federal Reserve has become a very boring, boring, boring place. Are there conflicts of interest at the New York Fed? Do big banks have more say than they should in terms of being regulated? Yes, they do, without a doubt, unquestionably. But the Federal Reserve of today 
is bad for America, which is my subtitle, because the people who are in charge of the Federal Reserve don't have Americans' best interests at heart. They've put us in a precarious position financially, such that if there was ever an economic shock, their policies will have left us so much weaker than we need it to be otherwise. And that's a hell of a lot worse than any conspiracy theorist up in the middle of the night dreaming about a Rothschild running the world. Because a lot more people are going to get hurt because you've had academics running one of the most powerful institutions in the world. How deep have you studied this? How deep have you gone and who have you had these conversations with for you to get 100% certain to know that there is none of this Rothschild, any of that kind of stuff? Or you just kind of haven't put a lot of time well, into I just, it? Or I just was kind of working there for nine years and spent a lot of time at the New York Fed. And I saw with my own eyes what was happening. I know that. But I'm talking inception, how it got started. I'm talking that stand, that part of it. I mean, that, that part of it, again, I, so if, if, for everybody who can hear me, read The Lords of Finance. Read one book. If you don't read any other book, read The Lords of Finance. And, and it starts off kind of in 1913, 1914. And it takes you through some of the biggest mistakes that were made at the Fed. And other people running the world at the time in Germany, for example, and at the Bank of England, and, it, it, and, and at the Banque de France. It walks you through it, and that is a much more valid history, if you will, than the creature of Jekyll Island, which brings a lot of history to the fore, but doesn't apply to the world we live in today. But if you want to understand how the Federal Reserve evolved to become this powerhouse that it is, read a different book. Do yourself a favor, read The Lords of Finance. And then you won't ever sleep at night again because of the parallels that it draws between now and then. Fair enough. Okay. A uh, couple things, just, just a real quick cool questions here, since we've covered a lot of different things already. Cryptocurrency, any opinions on cryptocurrency? Is it you know, you have a whole big camp right now saying this is exactly why we know we were going to go to cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. This is a time to buy, you know, XRP, Ripple. What's your opinions on cryptocurrency? So I think cryptocurrency is a modern day reflection of the disgust that we have in a lack of discipline in monetary policymaking. It is this generation's gold. And my issue with it is that it is much more convertible as opposed to physical gold Cryptocurrency is much more adaptable on a sovereign level. So you've already had the Bank of England. You certainly had Venezuela, Russia, and China. They were at the forefront of coming out and saying, we're going to have sovereign cryptocurrency so that we can monitor what everybody buys in our societies. It's going to be yet another instrument that we have on top of facial recognition. But you've also had the United States also step in and say, yes, there will be a federal cryptocurrency at some point. So as long as you have that ability to make it go from something that is in the private realm to being something that is sovereign, I think that that takes away its convertibility to gold, if you will. So pro, yes, put a, a couple neutral. of bobs in there or? I'm, I'm, I'm very neutral on. Are you, are you in Bitcoin? Are you in I'm not. cryptocurrency? I own gold, but I, I do not you own are, cryptocurrency. You are gold, but not cryptocurrency. Correct. So let's talk about gold. What's your opinions today on gold? So gold surprised a lot of people because it got hit initially when financial markets were, had, had their initial setback. And that, I would like to clarify, was more a function of margin calls. 
You're talking about recently. I'm very recently. Yeah, I went from 53 kilo down to 47K, 46K. Yes. Yes, so okay. It, now it's coming back. Mm -hmm. As the printing presses worldwide get revved up and people are like, they're not going to stop. They're already talking about the second, the third, the fourth stimulus bill. So they're just going to print to kingdom come and so is the rest of the world. And which country can come roll out with the biggest stimulus package. So now you're seeing gold play its traditional role of the protector of, of, of a, the hard asset value, a store of value. Now you're seeing gold come out and rise. And I would suspect that that should continue as they try and piss all over the U.S. dollar by printing to kingdom come. You're foreseeing it grow for, for what? Foreseeable future, like five years, 10 years, 15 years? Because if you go to the last 30 years, the last 30 years, if you put it against Dow Jones, Dow Jones crushed gold in the last 30 years. and the last 15 years, it's beaten Dow Jones and S&P 500. So are you talking 10, I 20 think, years? Well, I, I won't say 10 to, 30, 10, 10 to 20 years because my crystal ball is not that good. Okay. But I would certainly say, if you're talking about the next five years or so, I would certainly think that that was going to be the case because everybody's of the opinion that the stock market's going to come roaring back and that the Fed's going to be able to save the day. I'm not so sure, which means that if I'm not so sure and we're going to need more stimulus, then gold is going to be more attractive as a factor of time. Another crazy conspiracy theory I'll throw out to see what you think about it. How much of this do you think it's uh, uh, coronavirus and you know whatever's going on with U.S. and China? How much of this do you think is China saying, you know what, screw you, U.S. You're playing this hardball with me. I'm going to come and bully you in a whole different way that you won't even pay attention to it. How much, how much credibility do you give to that? 5%? 1%? I'm not going to answer that question, but I am going to answer the question in a different way. Because I'm Christian at heart and I like to think that nobody would want to kill people. I will say this much. And if you're listening, write it down. In late November, word had already gotten off of the mainland that there was a virus in Wuhan. On January the 15th, the U.S. trade bill was signed. Phase one. December the 15th, excuse me. December the 15th. I had a whole month off. December the 15th. Six weeks later, the trade truce was signed with an out clause. A very clever out clause that the Chinese made sure was in there that said if there was any kind of act of God, pandemic, then they didn't have to make good on what they had committed to buy from the United States. Within days, they announced the first coronavirus. So did the Chinese know damn well that this thing was running around the world for six weeks before they shut down Wuhan? Yes, they did. Is that criminal? Yes, it is. Does it deserve to go in front of a world Tribunal? Yes, it does. Because we know that it was the unfettered travel that made this thing a global phenomenon that was impossible to contain. Six weeks they knew, but they wanted that out clause. And then they underreported what happened in Wuhan, which a toddler could tell you based on what happened in Italy, based on what's happened in Germany and in France and now in the UK with Boris Johnson in the ICU. There's no way in a city the size of New York, 11 million people, that there were so few cases. It's impossible with similar density to New York. So the World Health Organization should be held accountable for not holding China accountable to providing good valid data so that the rest of the world could prepare for fewer people to die. And that's what you're talking about. To me, these are equivalents to acts of war on the part of China. And then, 
Equally, whether you're talking about NPR or Fox News, most major media outlets on both sides of the aisle came out and reassured the United States that it was just the flu. Within 24 hours of South Korea's first case being reported, the United States' first case was reported. And what we did was dither. We sat on it for six weeks and tried to reassure the public that nothing was happening. Somebody should be held accountable for that. Because somebody in the United States intelligence community has to have known what was truly going on in Wuhan. We don't have a CIA for nothing. And yet we told Americans for six weeks while South Korea was testing everybody and shutting the country down that it was just going to be the flu. So there are a lot of responsible bodies right now that have taken us to the point where we're at. Inside the country and in China. And they need to be held accountable. So you don't even have to get on the discussion as to whether or not that was, this was a manufactured virus and set upon the world. You don't even have to go that far. If we find that in future investigations, then that needs to be prosecuted. But if we just ascertain what is known and a known hushed up secret, that the Chinese knew for six weeks about the virus before saying anything on the global stage to get a trade deal signed? Somebody needs to look into that because countless lives have been lost as a result. The damages are in the tens of trillion dollars. We're not talking about small here if that's the case. No, we're not. And we're talking about people losing their family members and we're talking about trillions of we're talking about suicides in the future we're talking about economic hardship all of this could have been mitigated had china been honest and had the world health organization made china accountable because at first they said it's not it's not anything to worry about when who first came when the who first came out and said uh we don't need to stop every let me ask you who do you who do you trust the least iran russia or china china China's got more economic power. Because of that or because they don't have a free press and because we can't really know what the hell is going on over there? Well, that's just a kicker, but you don't really know what's going on in Iran either. You had global satellite images in Iran showing mass graves. Iran underreported the same. And you can't tell me that in the cold of winter that Russia has as many cases as it's reporting. But at last check, China's 17% of global GDP. They can throw more money around than anybody else. And you just mentioned two of their allies, by the way, so. That's why I asked it the way I did. And the largest uh. contiguous land border on the planet, by the way, between Russia and China. Oh, I, I worry about these things yeah. because I have four children, but, but China right now can throw around the most because they've got the biggest pocketbook. It's gonna be very interesting what happens in the next six, 12, 18 months, very. Because if China comes out guilty for having done something, the trade relationships that happens with that and travel, do you let anybody come in? I mean, it's, it's uh, the consequences could be, do you, do you do any due diligence on looking at 5G or not at all? 5G is not something that uh, you have strong opinions on. My opinions on 5G are so strong that I would never let myself or anybody that I know buy a Volvo. Connect those dots. Because I don't want China listening to me while I drive a car. I trust China when it comes to 5G as much as I would trust buying a Volvo owned by China. So I think it is a matter of national security. Do you use social media a lot? 
A lot. Way right. too much. How about TikTok? My daughter. Daughter? Mm -hmm. Okay. You know the story behind TikTok as well or no? Okay. Got it. Uh, listen, I'll turn it over to you. Final thoughts. What, what do you uh, imagine the family's watching right now and they're kind of uh, listening to this and you've shared a lot, we've covered a lot. Um, what words of reassurance or preparation or anticipation, what could you share with the rest of us? The Great Depression in America was one of the darkest chapters in U.S. history. But it also brought out the best in Americans. Hershey, Pennsylvania exists because Hershey himself employed Americans, construction workers who were, who were out of work, to build the city. This is a time that as Americans we can come together and not talk about helping our neighbor, but help our neighbor, truly. Give them what they need. This is a time for America to shine. And I'm involved in a fundraiser where we're procuring masks to get them to frontline workers. And I'm watching people open up, whether it's food, to their fellow Americans. This is our finest, finest hour. And this will make us stronger for it in the end if we open our hearts and if we have the ability, our wallets, to those in need and see our way through what's to come. I appreciate you for coming out. This has been incredible. Uh, hopefully in the future we'll invite you back and you'll be willing to come back and sit yes, down with us course. and talk about different topics as it's formulating. Extremely insightful. I think extremely fair uh, on the way you gave your uh, feedback and uh, point of view. And there was so much to take away. Again, thank you for coming out and being a guest on Valuetainment. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bidavid. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.